Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. This summer for the WDET Book Club, we have been featuring Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, which speaks from the eyes and experiences of a pediatrician who firsthand saw the impact of lead poison water on Flint's children. However, Dr. Mona is not the only person who thoroughly documented what happened in the Flint water crisis. Anna Clark, a Detroit journalist, is the author of The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. We want to talk this hour about her book, her experiences throughout the water crisis, and even today, how the state has yet to completely deliver safe, affordable drinking water in Flint and surrounding communities. I am really pleased to welcome Anna Clark to Detroit Today. Anna, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really excited uh, for this conversation. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, Talk us through your early thoughts about what was happening in Flint and bring us to the point where you said, hey, I think there's a book here. Sure. Well, um, Flint's water switch happened in 2014. And I I live here in Detroit. I'm a journalist. I write a lot about disinvested cities and the challenges that that brings for providing public services to people so that they can have a decent quality of life. And I remember some of the early dispatches about how this like water switch wasn't going well, but I didn't understand the full scope of what was going on. Um, And it wasn't until about late 2015, fall 2015, that I started doing reporting uh, specifically about the water crisis. Um, And I was doing different articles for different kinds of magazines that um, we're trying to bring some sense to what was an increasingly bizarre <laughs> and alarming situation. Um, and uh, it was quite clear that this was even a long form article wasn't going to be enough to contain all that was going on here. It was really clear to me, at least, that the history of Flint really had a lot to do with what was going on and with what made the city vulnerable. Uh, so um, I knew that. Um, and uh, when somebody reached out about, uh, who had read the articles and was interested in putting this together in a book and um, which I was eager about and I saw a lot of room for a little cautious because this was early 2016 when that huge spotlight was on Flint. I wanted to make sure that if I was going to do this, I was doing it with people who wanted to do it right um, and really bring the nuance that Flint deserved. Um, And fortunately they were, that was what they wanted to do. And so here we are. (laughs) Uh, You've written on your website that, Complaints about the foul-smelling water were dismissed. The residents of Flint, a largely poor African-American city of about 100,000 people, were not seen as credible, even in matters of their own lives. I, I think that really gets to the, the sort of essence of what went wrong here, uh, the, the idea that uh, this happened, uh, but nobody responded up front to the idea that the people who were affected were saying there is something not right. There is something that is maybe killing us in the water. And no one, no one believed. It literally still puts a chill down my spine. I mean, this is when people say that this is something that wouldn't have um, happened in other cities in Michigan that look very different than Flint. This is part of what they mean. Certainly the circumstances that brought upon this disastrous water switch 
um, what might, might not apply to other cities, but the, perhaps the most haunting piece is how long the community went with having their concerns unheard. I mean, when you look back, you can see people within just weeks of the switch were reaching out in all the ways you're supposed to reach out when you sense that there's a problem. They were reaching out to their local public works people. They were reaching out to their um, local officials. They were reaching out to the, the state Department of Environmental Quality and even the EPA, like filing complaints, asking questions, just trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and again and again, people were told that they had nothing to worry about, even when they were validated by decisions like GM switching back to Detroit's water because it was so corrosive, it was ruining their parts. Even then, residents were told, don't worry about it, it's fine for you. It's good enough for you. And um, and this is part of the the, the trauma, right, that people have to have to deal with to this day. I mean, they they were told again and again that it was fine. And everything they did, everything they're supposed to do um, uh, did not help. You know, sh- they did everything they should have done. They showed up at public meetings. They asked questions. They reached out to people. They did their own research. They reached out to outside experts. And it still took a year and a half before the state conceded maybe there is something going on. And, and I feel like your book, um, uh, The Poison City, really gets at that essence of this in, in a, uh, such a poignant way, this idea that it's not just about what happened in Flint or who's responsible uh, or how we fix it. It is about how a community finds its voice and is able to make that voice heard um, over a long period of time. I mean, I, I, I think that's sort of the spine, I guess, uh, of the story you tell. A lot, in so many ways, this is a very uh, tragic story. But when I write about it or talk about it, I do hope that piece comes through because it's really important. Because there are people who did things right. And um, what happened in Flint in many ways is a blueprint, I think, for other communities, all kinds of communities to learn from about how they were trying to, even when they didn't understand what was going on, trying to help each other out and look out for each other, doing their own bottled water drives before they understood what was going on, just to make sure that everybody felt safe, you know, Uh, going out of their way to like canvas doors and, you know, to spread information about what was going on with the water because they knew homebound residents might not be you know, hearing hearing some of the headlines. Um, they um, they uh, have a culture of community organizing in the city that I think goes way back. And um, you saw come in full force in Flint well before the world was paying attention. And um, and it is to is primarily to the credit of the residents that we're even talking about it to this day. I mean, this was a city that was dismissed and belittled when they re- had their concerns um, about the water. They did not even have the power of their local democracy, and still they made themselves visible, and they did make a difference here. And there's still a lot of unresolved questions, but that is a huge triumph. Yeah. Um, and talk about the way in which you sort of approach trying to tell that story. I mean, this, this is a, a complex story, as you just sort of laid out. There are so many different things going on. Uh, talk a little about how you start uh, to try to tell that story. And and you and I are, are friends on social media and in some other spaces, and I can remember uh, seeing you kind of you know, uh, come up for air every once in a while and say, oh, my gosh, I don't know if, uh, <laughs> if this is going to work. Um, but it, it is such an overwhelming story and it is such a human story that I, I feel like uh, uh, it must have been 
uh, fascinating, but also really difficult to try to figure out how to tell it. Well, I'll tell you, I, I literally have a larger white streak in my hair after a couple of years of this. <laughs> it, um, and it was, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Um, and one that I'm also incredibly grateful to have had the opportunity to do because it gave me the opportunity to be a listener, um, both to people who are alive now, have stories to tell, the the, the, the pulse of the community, um, and also like be a listener um, throughout history too, you know, the voices of the community of the past and other thinkers and writers who have approached the questions that have been, um, um, that cities like Flint have had to deal with. And um, I'm, I'm very much changed for it. I mean, I guess with the approach, I mean, I started out doing some of the reporting on these like individual articles, and I kind of just kept on going with with that. I mean, I, I ended up, one one big thing that I was able to do is like there was a marvelous uh, couple in Flint, Janworth Nelson and Ted Nelson, and they kindly gave me a place to stay in their lovely home uh, for extended periods of time. And that was really wonderful. Um, I loved being able to get to know them and stay in their neighborhood, but also just having um, the logistics of having a home base there, being able to be there, being able to live day to day with the bottled water situation, I think gave me a more intimate understanding of what folks were dealing with. Um, And it also helped me start to um, get to know other people, you know, like especially starting out, my plan was to talk to everyone, <laughs> which of course is impossible, but as a place, you know, I was like, I didn't, I didn't have any arbitrary filters. Like I really wanted to come in with an open mind. I wanted to learn what I didn't know. I wanted to hear stories that I hadn't heard before. Um, and uh, I was doing a lot of reading, you know, including at Flint's public library, which is wonderful and was within walking distance of this house. <laughs> um, I was uh, uh, doing um, as much research as I could through like trying to get oral histories and um, uh, that people had done throughout time. I really wanted to get at the deeper questions of like how this city became vulnerable in the first place and what that means for the people who are there now. I wanted to bring some clarity to the decisions that happen in this water crisis and also um, connect it to what cities all over the country are dealing with when they're talking about uh Water, which is literally a life and death issue. You know, what are we talking about when we talk about water? What are we talking about when we talk about infrastructure, the ties that literally bind a community together? It is the physical shape of who belongs in your community and who doesn't. And um, and I think that's a really powerful way of understanding the the consequences of disinvesting in infrastructure. It means we're disinvesting in people. So so uh, I've also thought for a long time. That the title of your book, "The Poisoned City," uh, ha- had meaning beyond sort of the obvious. Uh, and when you read the book, I, I think you learn that um, this wasn't just about this water switch and what happened, but as you say, there was a long, long narrative that leads up to uh, this this water switch and helps make it possible a, but also helps make it. Uh, uh, as dangerous and and uh, and threatening as as it is, uh, t- talk about the the ways in which we created Flint and its water crisis over decades, not uh, weeks or months. When we talk about infrastructure inequality in America, we have to look back to. Um, the history of how we literally created city, cities on separate and unequal basis. You know, our, our infrastructure and equality was segregation. We, in every possible way, with federal law, state law, local ordinances, private practices, we literally 
uh, delineated certain neighborhoods, certain communities, and said these areas are going to be worth less specifically because of the people that are who live there, you know, what they look like and where they come from. And, um, and this uh, set up this self-perpetuating um, momentum that we still see today where, um, where you have uh, uh, infrastructure inequality very much correlated with color and ethnicity. And I think that while there has been very many great triumphs and um, uh, uh, taking apart the laws that enforced, you know, segregation and infrastructure and equality for so, so long in America, we haven't fully reckoned with, um, with uh, how it is built into our housing system, how it's built into our urban policy, and there's yet more work to do. It's, it's just like how we still have, um, we, we don't put any more lead pipes you know, in, in into our drinking water systems, but a lot of them are still there. We still have to deal with the hard work of digging them up, extracting them, you know, um, before we can, we're all going to be totally safe, before we're going to have healthy communities. Similarly, the legacy of segregation might not be on the, on, you know, legal <laughs> right now, but it's still, it's still, it's still with us. And we still, we have to dig deep to get, uh, to, to uproot those underpinnings um, so that we're not concentrating vulnerability the way we have, um, where this entire city of Flint today, there's still, you know, it's, there's a lot of white people who live in Flint. It's not, it's, it, 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 it there's, it's not, everybody was affected by the water crisis, including commuters and college students and other folks. But like, but, but Flint as a whole is effectively, you know, redlined, you know, um, it has less access as the pattern is as less access to quality public services, less access to quality schools, less access to democracy. And, um, and this is, as we can see, with unbearable drama with the water crisis, um, has has actual life and death stakes. So I, a little later, I want to talk about uh, where you think we are overall with with repairing what went wrong uh, in Flint. Uh, but 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 right now, I want you to sort of expand a little on on that point about um, about what needed to be fixed in Flint, not just the water, but these systemic. Uh, issues of inequality and disinvestment. Uh, do you think people get that out of the crisis? I mean, one of the things I've worried about uh, quite a bit is that, you know, crisis gets people motivated to fix a crisis, right? Uh, uh, kids are being poisoned. I mean, you say that and there's almost nobody who would sit and and question whether uh, everything needed to be done to make sure that that stopped happening. But I also, you know, I, I always forget that there's a disconnect between what people think uh, that means in the moment and what it means in much larger terms. And we almost never, it seems, get to those larger terms in, in most crises. Do you think we've gotten further along that line in the Flint water crisis than, than, uh, than in other instances? Or do you, do you think we're repeating the same error? Yeah, and in some ways, I think there it's too soon to tell. And in, in a lot of ways, I'm very eager to read the book that comes out in 20 years, <laughs> you know, to see really what if we've learned some of these deeper lessons. Um, I am very glad that um, what happened in Flint has has um, marshaled a lot of um, 
resources um, and political will to uh, uh, to invest in infrastructure and get rid of lead pipes in communities all over the state and then in cities all over the country have learned from this and are thinking differently about their drinking water and that's that's wonderful that that's a really positive transformation but this is more than just a water treatment issue um, and in, and I well I think um, many of us in Michigan have um, can can uh, can see that um, I think that there has the the change the changes haven't yet followed from there. So, for example, um, the emergency manager law is still you know com- unchanged and unreformed, even though the governor's former governor's own commission recommended uh, changes that and cited that as a contributing factor to the water crisis. Um, the uh, uh, Michigan's unusually secretive transparency laws, which I believe um, were another contributing factor um, to the how long this crisis went on, those are still unchanged. Though bipartisan proposals have have come up for a couple of times since the water crisis. Um, there, the revenue sharing, which you talk quite a lot about and is so important for cities all over the state, especially those that are on the brink, like Flint, that is unchanged. You know, I mean, I think some of these larger structural urban policy issues have. Um, um, have not yet been fully reckoned with, even though quite a lot of people have been from from all kinds of political parties have have discussed how that's uh, related, how that how that helped cause and perpetuate this water crisis. Yeah. Uh, my guest is Anna Clark, author and Detroit journalist. Uh, she penned the book, The Poison City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. Uh, we're talking about the Flint water crisis this summer uh, as part of the WDET Book Club. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue with Anna and the impact of the Flint water crisis on surrounding cities and her opinion on what should happen to those responsible. We'll also let you get in on the conversation after this break. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. My guest this hour is Anna Clark, author of The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. We are discussing it as part of our WDET book club this summer, where we are reading as a community Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. If you want to join the conversation here uh, and talk with us about water quality, talk with with us about trust in government and talk with us about infrastructure, uh, all of the things beneath the surface uh, of this state that really impact the way we live and whether we can live, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. And especially give us a call and let us know what you're thinking about the answer to this question. What do you think justice would look like for the people of Flint? What would repair the things, all of the things that got broken in the Flint water crisis. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Anna, I want to talk uh, a little about uh, a debate that seems to have cropped up pretty uh, aggressively recently about 
the effect of the of the Flint water crisis. Um, there are some people now pointing out that data from previous years in Flint shows that lead levels were higher uh, among children, say in the early part of this decade, than they ever were at the height of the water crisis. I, I want to get your thoughts about uh, about that discussion and 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 tell us whether you think uh, this is a, a productive way, uh, I guess, to, to to go forward here. Sure. Um, well, one thing I think that Flint's story um, has uh, made clear that there's been a lot of consciousness raising around is that um, while there is um, an amount of lead that can be in drinking water that is legal, um, that doesn't mean it's safe. Um, in fact, no amount of lead is safe. Um, and just because it's quote unquote normal um, doesn't mean it's not you're immune to it. Um, I think that uh, what I what I hope happens is that, you know, what happened in Flint and other communities around the country um, helps motivate us to change how we think about our lead and copper drinking you know laws and things like that. You know, like I think that there's a, a bigger conversation to have about what we tolerate in our drinking water. Um, but also, lead wasn't the only contaminant in Flint, too. So um, lead is certainly the most infamous, and it's absolutely devastating and insidious in how it affects people, especially children and infants. Um, but there was also a series of E. coli bacteria violations. There was a, um, a disinfection byproduct that was in such amounts that it can cause cancer. There was this two-year outbreak of Legionnaire's disease that actually killed people and was not made public until... Um, after the fact, I mean, I, I mean, when people talk about how the city was poisoned, lead is absolutely a part of that story because it is, in fact, one of the world's best-known neurotoxins. Um, but it, there, people are also talking about the series of escalating violations that they were made aware of over over several years. Yeah, um, and this one of the things that that bothers me about this argument, I guess, is. As it happens, uh, you know, many times, the historical context gets gets stripped away, right? Um, this idea that there were previously higher lead levels among children is not untrue, but it, it misses the point that over time, uh, the trend line that uh, that was in place that w- that we were reducing the amount of lead in water and we were reducing the amount of lead that kids were exposed to through water supplies. And what the Flint water crisis uh, really represented was a departure from that trend line and an unnecessary one, right? Uh, uh, We knew what the science was. We knew what the procedures were supposed to be for preventing this from happening. And all of those things were kind of tossed aside. uh, And you go back to a place where, uh, where lead levels are going up instead of down. I think that's a far more important point than whether in some time in the past uh, things were worse than they were during the crisis. And those lead levels would have continued to go up had the community not intervened. The state's own um, purported checks on lead levels in the drinking water were clearly not effective. You know, um, the, the 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 whole process of doing, uh, you know, every six month test to kind of raise any red flags to see if there's anything you're supposed to do, um, were not effective um, and uh, made it seem that there was less lead in the water than there really was, which made it possible for those who had the power to change something to not do anything. And, And it's only because 
of the community organizing and the allies that supported them that um, that that anything changed at all. So where would that tread line have continued had Flint been um, allowed to uh, keep drinking this water? As their pipes were getting lit, corroding worse and worse and worse, it was the, this was a danger that was getting worse over time. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, let's start with Ron in Detroit. Ron, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Um, I, uh, can you hear me okay? I sure can. Yeah. Okay. I live in Detroit. I discovered after... Uh, owning this home for 25 years, that I have a lead service line. Now, uh, I sent off for the water test by an organization, and I'm sorry, it's, I, I forget exactly what the uh, URL is, but uh, it's, a, it's a free uh, lead test, and okay. you, you send off your water after you uh, turn it on first thing in the morning and then after 45 seconds and then after five minutes. Uh-huh. Uh, I, that comes back as high lead. Uh, now, this lead service line in Detroit, I think probably most people in Detroit have lead service lines. Sure. They're getting a high lead reading first thing in the morning. Why isn't there more talk about that or, or is the... Is the answer really, oh, well, that's just Detroit, just like it was, oh, well, that's Flint. Right. Uh, Ron, I really appreciate you calling and sharing uh, both your experience here in the city and uh, uh, and your question. You know, Anna, I, I, I think there is a, a legitimate question about whether whether we are all being exposed to too much lead and, and other things uh, in, in the water. I mean, uh, this lead service line issue is not just uh, in Flint. It is here in Detroit. It is all over the state. Uh, what what should we be thinking about in terms of how to make drinking water safe for everyone? Sure. And that's there are some positive changes happening where the lead service lines are going to be eventually all replaced in Michigan. That's great. That's also a very long-term thing. And so, of course, people on a day-to-day way want to be able to trust their water. And like Ron, I live in Detroit too. And I think about our old infrastructure when I turn on my water, when my little nieces and nephews come stay with me. Um, A few things that you can do. um, There are... um, uh, f- faucet filters you can get that are certified to remove lead. It's very important to get not just like lead-free filters, but like certified to remove lead filters. Like they're um, some of them are sort of misleadingly labeled. Um, I they uh, and you can and that's that can be very effective um, to uh, remove lead from water. There's also um, um, Tactics like uh, running your water, um, flushing it. This was actually one of the ways that, you know, water tests are routinely made to seem that there's less lead in the water than there really is. That can be flushed, you know. Um, But in fact, it does release some lead. So um, one thing I do, like when I'm out of town for an extended period of time, and even in the first thing in the morning, if, you know, if I'm using a faucet that doesn't have a filter, I I, I just turn it on and let it run for a couple of minutes um, before I uh, uh, take a glass and drink it. Um, There's... uh, there's also, you know, if you there's also ways that you can look at like your in-home plumbing too, which often has lead, especially if it's made of brass or lead soldering, other lead parts, and um, being able to um, replace those with things that don't have lead in it can also have um, a really positive effect on your drinking water quality. Yeah.
Uh, Ron, I appreciate the call uh, and the questions. Uh, let's go to Charlie. Charlie in Detroit, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Yeah. Um, I think what we really need to do, it's great for Michigan to try to, you know, enact stricter standards, but I, this isn't a political issue. It's a public health issue. And I think our senators and, and reps need to band together and really push hard in Washington for national legislation that mandates that all public and private utilities that provide water provide filter faucets or whole house uh, filters um, to their uh, to the public um, mm. until they can, uh, you know, change the lead service line. Mm. And that's going to take a long time. Yeah. But, and, uh, you know, if we care about our health and we think it's, uh, you know, <laughs> we're always worried about wars and terrorists and all that, yet we're silently killing <laughs> ourselves, you know, with with this stuff. It just kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's not a political issue. It's It's everybody's issue yeah uh, you know charlie i agree with you of course and and i think we ought to be able to have a more productive conversation about how we fix these things uh, unfortunately uh anna i i think infrastructure is one of those things that it's sort of out of sight out of mind for people and it's also uh one of these issues where people say well you know i just don't want to pay i don't want to pay more than i'm paying i'm paying enough now and uh, things should be better with the money, uh, with the money I'm giving you. And if it could be, that's great. <laughs> I'd want that too. <laughs> um, I remember, um, just like the caller, I remember uh, doing an article about um, uh, Lansing and how they unpoison their pipes with this uh, an exceptionally rare uh, project to remove the lead from their. Um, infrastructure well before the Flint thing even broke. Um, and and I remember talking to the mayor then, and he said the same thing, like infrastructure shouldn't be a partisan issue. I mean, this is just, we just want things to work. And even aside from lead, I mean, a lot of our drinking water pipes are so old. I mean, they're, they're, they break down, they, they're, um, a lot, they haven't been updated in 80 years. They're, I mean, they're, they're people, because people, it is an expensive, um, and long-term thing to invest in, and it's very easy to keep kind of pat- putting patches on it until, you know, kicking, kicking the can down the road. Um, I think I would love to see the kind of ingenuity and public spiritedness that um, was at the founding of our drinking water systems um, come back today. You know, it is expensive. It is complicated. It is a total headache. Um, but um, it is important for public health. It is important for the future of our communities. It is important for our economy. Um, it is like a literal life and death issue. And, you know, and it and at its best, it can like be a way of like really bringing a community together, you know, saying like, this is important. You know, I all of our all of us are safer and healthier when all of us have safe drinking water. And we're just going to like we're just going to do it. We're just going to normalize that. Yeah. Yeah. My guest is Anna Clark. She's the author of The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. Uh, we're talking about uh, the Flint water crisis, how it happened, uh, what we've done since, what we still need to do, uh, and whether we can ever really restore the trust in government that got broken uh, by the fact that uh, so many people were exposed to lead poisoning in the water supply in Flint. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Tell us how this cr- 
crisis has affected uh, your attitude toward government? Did it make you trust government less? Did it make you more fearful that government perhaps is incapable or, or unwilling uh, to keep us safe and uh, things with like the the water supply uh, in our in our faucets, uh, that sort of thing we take for granted, the idea that you can turn the faucet on in your home and get clean, fresh water through it. Uh, the Flint water crisis uh, made us all question whether that can happen consistently. Uh, also, tell us what you think justice might look like in Flint. How do you fix something like this? How do you really repair all of the things that got broken. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll get you into the conversation here. Um, uh, Anna, in the next segment, I want to talk a little more specifically about what Attorney General uh, Dana Nessel is doing with regard to the Flint water crisis. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to put that question to you that I put to the callers. What would justice look like in Flint? I think it's one of those questions that uh, that people have a hard time coming up with uh, because, again, there were so many different ways that this affected people's lives. I think it's hard to sit down and say, all right, well, Here's the point at which we could say this awful thing happened, but we really did uh, make up for it. That is a big question. And in some ways, I don't think it's up to me to decide that justice has been done. I would defer that to people in Flint. But I do think that, you know, first of all, at minimum, you know, safe, healthy, trustworthy, affordable water should be readily available in Flint, of course. Um, the pipes are getting fixed. That's great. But like that, I do think we need some of these policy reforms that show that this is a state that has um, understands the roots of the crisis and doesn't want it to happen in Flint or any other of its cities. And this was a man-made disaster. It didn't happen because of a natural disaster. It didn't. It wasn't just a fluke. It was caused and perpetuated by actual choices. So I think it is a very rational for people to expect, you know, some kind of accountability for the people who who did were behind those choices. And the the prosecution of this has, you know, taken a lot of weird turns and <laughs> is baffling in so many ways. And we're kind of waiting for this new attorney general to show how what their approach is going to be, if they're going to be able to put this together, if they're going to be able to do it in the time necessary before the statute of limitations runs out, which is very soon. Yes. Um, how closely aligned is it going to be with um, the 15 charges that led to 15 indictments um, previously, or will it be completely new ground? Like a lot of folks, I'm kind of waiting to see. Um, and just the fact that it's taken this long to start all over again is in itself a kind of injustice. But I think um, folks want to make sure that one way or another, you know, our democracy says that this is a line that isn't okay. Hmm. Uh, I also want to ask you if you feel uh, Flynn is being forgotten uh, in in the, the, the narratives that we have about, uh, uh, you know, politics and, and infrastructure and things like that. It, it does seem like, you know, our memories... Uh, our memories fade. Our attention is not as wrapped as it uh, as it should be, or as it often is when there's a crisis unfolding. Do you think? Um, I mean, you're still writing about Flint. Uh, I know some other people who who are as well. Are as many people paying attention? I guess is the question. 
when I go do a book event and I, you know, I'm talking to folks who, who are kind of a self-selecting audience to come to a book, talk about um, Flint and its water story. Like, um, even if I'm doing this in Michigan, like there, I think there are a lot of folks who are like, wait, what happened? Wait, what was it again? I remember the Flint water crisis. I remember people couldn't drink their water. I remember it was terrible, but really do forget like the specifics of it and, um, I, and, and truly have no idea about where things are at now, um, if it's better, if it's worse they have no idea what's going on. And um, a lot of what we share is just like kind of kind of kind of getting up to speed with this story again. I mean, I think this is a story that is complex. It deserves telling and retelling in many different ways with many different narrators. Um, um, but I, I do think um, I do I do worry a little bit about um, how it's f- faded from uh, the kind of media coverage and public attention, even though I understand that there's a lot of pressing things going on right now. Um, because this is the point, you know, this is the point where we're either going to make a choice to deal with the deeper issues that led to the Flint water crisis or not. Like Im- immediately when this was like really breaking, there were immediate public health needs to address. A couple years down the road, we're dealing with the harder questions of accountability and if we're going to deal with the structural changes that uh, put the city in such a precarious position. Um, so now more than ever is when we need uh, people to pay- be paying attention. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Josh in Beverly Hills, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Sure. I think that uh, the root cause of the problem that we we're really not addressing specifically has to do with the way that we design and build cities. We talk a lot about in our, in Michigan about the state of the roads. Roads are yet another symptom of a poorly planned infrastructure that's based on sprawl, which we are not going to solve a problem with with our inability to maintain our water infrastructure, our sewer infrastructure, which is not being discussed in terms of overflow sewage into the Great Lakes, which is an environmental problem. Mm. All of it is centered on this false economy of the way we do development. The place we play, the place we put in, unfortunately, Detroit has a beautiful history of in automotive uh, development, but the place we put automobiles into planning and our infrastructure, lack of public transit, All of this causes us to build ever bigger cities that have lower and lower density and the linear cost to maintain infrastructure for every individual person when we develop in this way is unsustainable. Wow. This is the chickens coming home to roost of bad planning that started 60, 75 years ago. Detroit's empty today in terms of persons per square foot because we don't have any idea about how we should be planning and building cities. And Detroit is a model example of that bad planning. Yeah, Josh, it, uh, I, I really appreciate that perspective. Um, and I appreciate your calling in uh, to share. You know, and I do think that there's a big question here about whether we repair all of the infrastructure we have or whether we retrofit, I guess, uh, what we have to, to, to accommodate, you know, better sensibilities than we had 60, 70 years ago when we built all of these things. But also just the, the you know, the, the lack of, of density that, that exists in places like Flint or Detroit. There are so many fewer people actually living in these places. And I, I wonder if we're having that conversation in any, in any way that will yield uh, a decision that takes all of that into account. I love that the caller w- put his finger on that because it's really true. I mean, <clears throat> the city of Flint, like Detroit, has lost more than half of its population in the last of uh, 50 years um but those people didn't just vanish right like it's it's surrounded by a, a, a small suburban communities that grew 
in that same time period. Um, and, and it's so interesting, you know, to connect, you know, the infrastructure, the roads and the uh, drinking water pipes with, with that history. I mean, uh, a lot of the reasons those suburbs outside of Flint were able to grow is because uh, the water system was extended out to um, provide them with, uh, with pipes before they had the tax base to support that on their own. Uh, the roads, of course, you know, like with the development of the highway system made it way easier to like live outside and commute in and maybe live outside and never come in eventually. Um, uh, highways that decimated the specific neighborhoods where people of color were designated to live because quote unquote, they were um, worth less on the bottom on the bottom line. Those were the disinvested neighborhoods. That was the history of infrastructure and equality that led to those neighborhoods being totally demolished. Um, uh, it's uh, it, the design and planning led to a situation where in Flint, like in Detroit, you have far fewer people shouldering the burden of maintaining a drinking water system that's. Massive, because not just because it's supporting all those ghost people who aren't there anymore, but also those huge factories that aren't there anymore. It is a mathematical impossibility. And even though their water rates were getting ever higher, some of the highest water rates in the nation, even before you get to the fact that it's a poor community that can is especially ill-equipped to pay those bills, they, they still weren't able to maintain those pipes. I mean, there's leaks all the time. Flint before the water crisis was losing half its water just through main breaks, you know? I mean, it was, it was, it was, there was, there was no easy way to solve it. It was a structural issue about how we had planned, not just the city, but the metropolitan region in such a way that um, you had this hollowed out center and um, surrounded by a relative wealth, you know, and stability. Um, that's, it's a, and, it, and it's a pattern, of course. We see, we see, um, or, communities organized like that um, across the state and country. Okay. Anna Clark is my guest this hour. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the legal consequences that are still unfolding around the Flint water crisis. And we want to get to more of your calls. Trey in Detroit, Michelle in Detroit, Matt in Highland Park. We'll talk with you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Anna Clark, the author of The Poisoned City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy. We're talking about the Flint water crisis as part of our WDET book club in which we have been reading and discussing Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, uh, What the Eyes Don't See. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also hit us up on Facebook on the WDET Facebook page or hashtag us on Twitter uh, at Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Um, Anna, before we get back to, to calls, I want to ask you what you think of Attorney General Dana Nessel's decision to dismiss all of the charges in the Flint water crisis and then reopen the investigation uh, in a way that suggests she might come up with new charges uh, or expanded charges. Uh, you mentioned earlier the statute of limitations, which is really getting big in the in the front uh, in the front view here as it as it as it approaches. Do you think that what she's doing will deliver better justice, I guess, to the people of Flint? 
Um, I don't know, but I hope so. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, in some ways that um, decision to drop all the remaining charges was in some ways a surprise and sometimes not a surprise. I mean, I had for years heard people who were involved with these cases have some complaints with how they were run and some questions and skepticisms about um, how everything was managed and whether these charges could actually stick. I mean, these there are public immunity, you know, laws, you know, protecting state officials and many there's the environmental uh, contamination issues are incredibly hard to hold up in court in general. Like we don't have a good legal system for environmental contamination that plays out over time that was unintentional, that's invisible. I mean, it's difficult. Um, And these anyway, so I'd I'd heard some criticisms about it. and, And especially towards the end of the last administration, you saw this kind of like rush of like plea deals and kind of things like that. And um, the prior to these charges being dropped, the attorney general's office had, you know, kind of made clear that there was like, we found all this evidence that hadn't even been looked at yet. And here's all this stuff that we're worried about. We want more time. And they they didn't get the time. And um, anyway, so they made the decision that they were going to start from scratch and start over. And um, they did go to Flint and do um, quite a a robust town hall, you know, trying to talk to folks about why they were doing this and showing them um, the documents and the evidence and the things like that that they were like looking at that they wanted time to go through to be able to do this right. And folks in Flint that I knew like felt upset by all this. They'd been following this, you know, these cases for like three and a half years, you know, $30 million had been spent and now there's nothing to show for it. It's just been, it feels like a waste um, and people are upset, but some are cautiously hopeful that, you know, things will um, work out this way, but just, but I don't know, but, but our, but emphasis on cautious, you know, there is very much a, a wait and see approach. I was intrigued by the fact that they brought Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy on board, who has quite a lot of experience dealing with vast amounts of evidence that has not has not been properly organized. And I, I part of the reason I feel like she, she might have been brought on to that is precisely to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's somebody who I think everybody who is familiar with her work uh, knows that she will be quite thorough uh, <laughs> in investigating all of that. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Michelle in Detroit. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, raise a comment. So I heard the presidential debate um, last week, and it was nice, I suppose, that they mentioned Flint. I do not like that they reduced Flint to a verb or like an epithet, like let's not let Flint happen. Um, but, you know, the conversation that followed was about how we have to change all the lead infrastructure in all of America. And I, I think that just reveals that there's a lack of understanding about how this came about. You know, Flint has had lead infrastructure from day one. The Flint water crisis happened when we had emergency management that put money over people and that switched the water and that ignored the data and that didn't use the anti-corrosion materials. Like, all of America is vulnerable to capitalism over democracy. Mm -hmm. And if we just make this about replacing our infrastructure, we really missed the point and one of the biggest lessons of this crisis. Michelle, I really appreciate uh, I re- appreciate that call and the perspective. I mean, Anna, as you said, you, you, you've got to address some of these bigger issues about disenfranchisement, disinvestment, and the sort of erosion of democracy. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate what the caller is saying because it's true. I mean, it's it'd be wonderful if we replace all the lead infrastructure in our country. That'd be a huge triumph. But absolutely, that is not the 
only or sole cause of this water crisis. There are these bigger issues. And this is why it's important to keep talking about it. It's why I'm really grateful for what WDT is doing with its book club, because this this is the time to kind of complicate that story and um, come up with uh, solutions that get uh, at the root of the kind of inequality um, and um, lack of democracy that, uh, that, that creates situations like that, that puts communities in the position of being the sacrifice zone. I, I, the, the paperback of The Poison City just came out, and I have this afterword that I wrote in it about how the word Flint is used um, in communities around the country at this point, like how it is being used as a, um, a, a kind of touchstone or totem. And in some cases, it's a rallying call where other communities are like, you know, trying to bring folks together to deal with a problem with the water or with you know, democracy in their own areas. In some ways, in a lot of ways, people are using it as something to run away from or a way to tamp down concerns like, oh, don't worry about it. We're not Flint or mm. don't worry about it. It's not as bad as Flint. Um, and um, and what people mean when they say that we're not Flint, you know, or it's not as bad as Flint. Don't worry about it. Like it's troubling and fascinating to me. I think I think um, I think Flint's legacy is uh, still unfolding. Um yeah. Uh, speaking of legacy, uh, you recently wrote about another city where a crisis of sorts is unfolding in a poor majority black locale here in Michigan, Benton Harbor, uh, and the, the the crisis around the schools. Uh, we've only got about uh, 30 seconds left, but I want to give you, give you a chance to talk about the parallels. There are absolutely parallels. And it's not a coincidence that Benton Harbor is dealing with some lead and water stuff, too. Again, this is a pattern. This isn't just a singular tragic event. But, yeah, I mean, this that this is the, the area where I grew up and I saw firsthand how how um, th- we create we poverty and inequality and people of color were concentrated into this one small area that persistently received less um dignity in every way, you know, of democracy and, um, and public services. And, um, and, and, and consistently the, the idea has been, if you're going to solve this problem, you know, like that, that it's the problem of local leaders, you know, like any failures, they are their own fault. And honestly, local leadership often is a problem in some of these communities, but like the fact that this is a pattern, not singular, you know, stories shows that there are bigger issues at play and and we have to deal with them or we're just going to keep living out the same story over and over again. Uh, Anna Clark, author of The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. This was a joy. Thank you so much. Yeah, Uh, You can uh, get uh, uh, a copy of Anna's book um, on uh, Kirkus Reviews, on Audible, on Amazon, the New York Public Library, other places, uh, anywhere you buy books. In fact, <laughs> you can pick up a copy. All right, uh, this is going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. We're going to talk with Detroit Jazz Festival President Chris Collins about this year's fest, and we're going to remember the legacy of Toni Morrison. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.